So that's why we put all the data on chain. So people just by looking at the Ethereum chain can build the complete exchange state off chain. And then they can generate their own proofs, their, their own Merkle proof, uh, submit, that, submit that on chain, and then they can get still get their money out. Super excited today to have Brett from Loopring Exchange, which is the first scalable zero-knowledge-based zero exchange. Um, Brett was kind enough to appear as a guest at 4 a.m. Uh, in Belgium. So uh, super happy to have you here, Brett. <laughs> Great to be here. Uh, Brett, how are you today? I'm fine. Uh, still in lockdown, but uh, everything is uh, great. Awesome. That's great to hear. So let's just get started. Uh, how did you get into the space? So my background is actually in uh, game development. Uh, I worked for a game, like a game technology middleware company for uh, around five years. Um, so we did, uh, like we made technology for games, uh, like uh, texture streaming. Um, so uh, I worked uh, five years on that. Uh, so it had nothing to do with anything like uh, financial or anything like blockchain related. But then in 2017, I, yeah, I heard about Ethereum. So I, of course, knew that Bitcoin existed, but I had no idea there were like more interesting blockchains than, than Bitcoin. Uh, so I, of course, knew like Litecoin and Dogecoin or however you want to pronounce it. Uh, which are basically clones, but then they like Ethereum, which are like very interesting because you can program things on it. So it's uh, like a lot more interesting for developers uh, than just like Bitcoin, which yeah, it's pretty uh, static. So that's that's how I then I learned about it in uh, 2017. Then I started like looking at, into it a bit more, and then at the end of 2017. Uh, Loopring started an optimization bounty, uh, which I joined, and like I was looking for an excuse to learn to program for Ethereum, and that was like my excuse to like really start looking at it, and that, like that's how I like learned Solidity, and how I uh, learned about Loopring, and then like a uh, couple of months after it, like in the middle of 2018. I joined uh, Loopring uh, full time. Awesome. Wouldn't you say game development is same kind of uh, optimizations that you have in Loopring with similar level of thinking? Yeah, I think it's basically always kind of the same. Either you do something like in a different way or you can just find a way to like don't do anything at all, which of course is like the best case the best, scenario. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But I think like the main idea is like uh, like for smart contracts optimizations, it's like a little bit different because you're like uh, you have to look at the gas costs instead of like actual hardware. So you just have to be familiar with like this instruction costs this much gas instead of like let's run it on a PC and let, just time it and if it's like faster then it's great. But now it's like look at this fixed gas number. And if that goes down, then it's it's a good change. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, but of course, yeah, now with uh, like with the zero knowledge proofs uh, with the new protocol release, 
Uh, we also had to do some optimizations also on the, not in smart contracts, but on, on normal PCs, like, uh, like for game development. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of got to the same level of kind of like the normal optimizations and not just on the, on the smart uh, contract level. So uh, in an earlier life, I actually started my career uh, building protein optimization models. And at one point, I used to know the instruction cost, the instruction cycles of every single AMD64 SIMD instruction. Mm. So I think, uh, well, this is you know, not very relevant anymore because I write Bash scripts and Python scripts today. But back then, that was pretty important. And so even simple things like how many cycles a dot product takes is uh, kind of the similar uh, philosophy you would have in caring about your programs. Like what if I was someone who is familiar with DEXs, someone who's familiar with uh, decent exchanges, what is your one sentence pitch? Well, Loopring is uh, a, a scalable, decentralized, or uh, non-custodial exchange uh, protocol. So, Brett, what would you say is the most interesting aspect of your job? Most like. I think it's like really learning new stuff. So uh, I didn't know much about blockchain. Uh, blockchains. Uh, I didn't know about zero knowledge proofs. I didn't know about all these financial constructs. Uh, so all that stuff is pretty new for me, uh, but completely new for me actually. So uh, yeah, just really being forced to learn new stuff about things that otherwise I wouldn't really look into. Uh, further, like, uh, yeah. What is the most difficult problem you solved in launching the zero knowledge based loopring? So, in 2020, like a couple of months ago, I optimized the prover. So, for every, like, every, every trade we do, we have to, like, uh, we bundle them together and then we have to create a proof for that. Uh, and that proving cost, like, the, the creating a proof like that was like, took a long time. So, it took like, uh, 20, 30 minutes to like generate a proof for large blocks uh, containing a lot of transactions. So like uh, I spent like around a month or something like that uh, on optimizing the prover and like getting it like getting it way faster. So it's like now uh, 50 times faster than it was before. And because it's faster, it's also much more cheaper to create those proofs. Uh, so it's like a win-win situation. So I think that's like the main problem I solved is that like uh, running the loopring, like running the protocol and doing a lot of trades is now a lot cheaper than it was before. 2020, uh, we launched loopring.io, uh, which is actually the product built on top of the protocol. What is something you would say you've learned since the launch of your product loopring? But one of the things, the interesting things is that like we can do, we are very scalable and like we do, can do like 2000 transactions per second, but uh, we also have to get the users to actually use the system so we can actually get like higher throughputs, but also the higher the throughput, the lower the cost is because we can like bundle more transactions together and that makes things cheaper. So one of the things that were a bit like unexpected or one of the things I didn't really think about was like, yeah, we're very scalable, but now we also have 
like enough users to make it worthwhile to be that scalable. What is the number one challenge you're facing right now in your job? One of the problems we have like is of course the user experience, uh, like of course getting the users, but also like being able to provide a good user experience. So uh, we, we strive to be as close as possible to centralized exchanges, but like one of the main things like onboarding, it also it needs to be as simple as joining in a centralized exchange, uh, which it currently isn't really yet, but that's why we also are building a smart wallet. My next question is about the product itself, right? Let's jump right into decentralized exchanges. Now there's this uh, blockchain trilemma, right? Uh, which is like scalability and you know, uh, security and so on. Uh, can you describe what the trilemma is and how Loopring uh, does a trade-off or not? Like what is your perspective on, on uh, how Loopring approaches the scalability problem? So the protocol itself is basically uh, doesn't change anything to the trilemma uh, at all. So everything is basically the same as what you get with Ethereum. Uh, because we use, uh, like we, we ensure the same security uh, properties of Ethereum itself. But uh, like exchanges like Loopring.io, which, uh, which is our current product, only has a single operator. So it's like, only a single party can actually do the trades for you. So in terms of decentralization, uh, it's currently not at all decentralized. Let's talk about decentralized exchanges. Now they're order book based exchanges and they're uh, exchanges that do not use an order book. Now obviously putting the order book on the Ethereum blockchain today is not a scalable approach. So a lot of people do the, the order book matching the algorithm itself uh, off-chain. So can you describe uh, what are some of the scalability challenges and how people have addressed uh, different aspects or different takes on the scalability approach when it comes to uh, exchanges? Yeah, so you have a couple of different uh, exchange steps. So the, the first one, I think, uh, like fork Ether Delta was completely on-chain, like order book on-chain. Uh, but Loopring uh, never did that. So even like uh, in the first version, we always did the order matching off chain, and then only the the order matching uh, set uh, the actual trade settlements on chain, uh, which is like the the same uh, mechanism in zero X and uh, and multiple other decentralized exchanges. So, uh, but in those cases, yeah, people could still like do multiple parties could do the matching and then they would just settle on chain. Um, so with, with our newest protocol and the latest protocol with the zero knowledge proofs, uh, we also do actually don't do the settlements on chain. Uh, so we don't do the order matching on chain and we don't do the order settlements on chain. Uh, so uh, everything is done off chain and only uh, the complete package is verified on chain uh, by Ethereum or walk me through the architecture of Loopring. So you have a protocol, right? Which is a, I believe is a set of smart contracts. And then you have an off-chain component, and then you have some way of transmitting these proofs on chain. And then you have the UI component that ties in all of these pieces together. And then I'm guessing there's a decentralized nature somewhere here. It's not just a centralized exchange. 
which is like the Xerox mesh or some similar architecture. So can you walk me through the different steps of that stack? If I were a user coming to the Loopring product, which is the friend-facing user, and uh, what are the different layers of the stack? Yeah, okay, great question. Uh, so the actual protocol is actually uh, two parts. So it's the smart contracts at the one side, so the on-chain logic, and then the circuits uh, on the off-chain side, uh, which provides the ability to generate proofs, uh, which we can then submit on-chain. So if a user wants to start using a Rupling exchange, so they end the UI, they create an account on-chain. So that, that's locked on-chain. Then uh, the relayer, which is like the, the also called the operator, uh, there's a couple of names for it, but uh, they monitor all the on-chain events, so like deposits, uh, account creation, that stuff is handled on-chain, but needs to be processed off-chain uh, by the operator or the relayer. Uh, so then we, we, we uh, process those things in the circuits, create a proof from that, and then we commit uh, the proof plus some extra data on-chain where it is verified that the, the, the complete state was updated uh, correctly. So um, one of the things maybe that, that you mentioned is that all the data that's stored by the exchange is, is stored in a Merkle tree. Uh, so we only like put a little bit of data on-chain, stored a little bit of data on-chain, uh, which is then used as a way to like uh, submit blocks in like a sequential way in a way that that can still be proven by uh, by the zero knowledge proofs. So uh, all the other things mainly are done off chain. So if if the user has an account and he wants to start trading, then he would like sign a little order message. And the relayer would do all the order matching, and then once enough trades are available, they can submit those trades to, to the circuits, generate the proof, and then we can commit again a new block with all those trades on chain where it is verified that everything is correct. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's basically it. Then if they want to get their money out, they have to do a withdrawal request. Uh, so then also done, uh, can be done off chain or on chain. Uh, but again, like it's, it's, it's available off chain or on chain, the relayer processes it, again sent to the circuits proven on chain and uh, the, the the person can withdraw uh, his funds again to his own wallet what is a zero knowledge circuit normally you write programs in some kind of easy to write well, pretty easy to write language like uh, yeah, python or uh, c++ or whatever or for smart uh, smart contracts it's in solidity uh, but basically they are all our work the same. So if you know one language, it's basically the same for another language. For zero knowledge proofs, you have to write the code, well, currently it's still uh, in some kind of special way, uh, like uh, it's called uh, R1CS. So it's basically like a list of, of simple, very simple uh, equations like A times B equals C. And that's, that's you have to write the complete program in, in a way like that. So uh, that's why that's why like creating those circuits is pretty hard and also pretty error prone because it's like a totally new way to do things and there's not a lot of tools or even people that that write those circuits uh, 
so that's one of the uh, unfortunate things currently, but people are also working on like higher level languages that can convert to those uh, lower level level R1CS circuits. So it's like, it's gonna get easier, but currently you still have to like mainly write manual code to do that. Uh, but yeah, so you have to write like those circuits because for the zero knowledge proofs, uh, like you have like then a complete table with those constraints and the zero knowledge proof prover will convert that list of, of constraints with all those inputs in a way that's, that, that generates like a small proof which can then be used on chain. So it's like a way uh, to, to input a program uh, in a way that's, that, the, that in a way that a, a small proof can be generated from it because yeah, it's like, it creates like functions. It's like uh, internal representation is like, uh, it's like large functions uh, well, without going into too much detail. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just a way to, to create programs that, that can, can generate a proof and then can also be verified very succinctly, like with a very small proof and with, uh, less um, complexity than the actual program. So that's one of the other important things with zero knowledge proofs. It's like you have kind of like a bunch of calculations, but like actually verifying if those calculations are correct needs like very little data and very low complexity. Lower complexity than actually doing all those calculations uh, in the beginning. So it's not exactly a hash, but it's like a hash where Computing the hash takes some compute cycles, but matching two hashes is just matching two strings. Yeah, you could say uh, something like that, yeah. Okay, very cool. So uh, talk to me about the different scaling solutions to scale exchanges. So you have layer one scaling solutions, you have layer two scaling solutions. Is there a thing like layer three scaling solutions? Not that I know of. <laughs> okay. So there's layer one scaling solutions. There's layer two scaling solutions. So the layer one scaling solution is actually scaling the base layer. So with ETH 2.0, for example, that would be a layer one scaling solution or one of the other competing layer one chains. Um, in the layer two scaling solutions, what you guys have done is you've taken the exchange functionality off chain. So it's almost like a side chain. Is, are all side chains layer two solutions? We could say that we're layer two. We could also say like we're layer 1.5 because we don't, we don't depend on any more security properties than Ethereum. Uh, so we don't have our own set of validators, uh, which like people expect when you say it's a side chain. Uh, yeah, we, we of course will still have our own chain because we, we create our own blocks, but because it's as secure as Ethereum, uh, and all the data is also posted on it on Ethereum. So, uh, if you want to compare our solution with some some others, uh, some other uh, like scalability solutions, is uh, we don't have any uh, we don't add any security assumptions. Like like I said before, we're completely like Ethereum. Uh, so other scalability solutions like uh, Plasma, for example, uh, don't put all the data on chain. So uh, that's one of the big things uh, that we do that other people don't do. If the operator suddenly stops doing anything, 
then the only thing you have available on chain is like the Merkle root, which is like just some kind of hash. And with just that kind of ha uh, with that hash, you don't know how much money you have. Well, you may know how much money do you have, but you can't prove on chain that you have that amount of funds stored in the exchange. So that's why we put all the data on chain. So people just by looking at the Ethereum chain can build the complete exchange state off chain. And then they can generate their own proofs, their own Merkle proof, uh, submit, that, submit that on chain, and then they can get still get their money out. Pretty important. That's like the data availability problem. That's so that's like one of the important things that other solutions are missing because if you can't generate that Merkle proof with all the exchange states, then yeah, basically all those funds are locked in, uh, locked, and nobody can get anything out. Uh, then there's also like the when we do Zico rollup, uh, then you also have the optimistic rollup solution, uh, where they don't use zero knowledge proofs, but they use fraud proofs. So one of the disadvantages of that is that. Uh, you still have to have validators looking at the chain to see if all the all the state transitions you did are actually valid. The other disadvantages of optimistic rollup is that mostly you have to put more data on chain. So, like like with before, like uh, we say that we you can rebuild the complete exchange state from the data we post on chain. Uh, optimistic rollup also need to do that because everybody needs to be able to verify if the exchange uh, of the that the states change uh, was correct so all the data needs to be available uh, and because all the data needs to be available you also need to put more data on chain than necessary to to have the complete exchange states uh, for example uh, for simple transactions uh, you normally have to put like the, the normal data, like uh, from address to address, token, amount. Uh, but for optimistic rollup, you also need to put the signature on chain because, of course, uh, to do the transfer, you also have to have a, a valid signature to transfer those funds out. For Zika and Zika rollup, you don't have to put the signature on chain because the signature is verified in the, in the circuits and is proven to be there by the proof that's submitted. So the, the, the ZK rollup solution has a couple of benefits over uh, optimistic rollup. Uh, the other one, uh, just to make it more complete, is that, that the state is also finalized faster. So on the optimistic rollup, you have to wait a certain amount of time so people have the time to submit fraud proofs. Uh, so th that means that if, if people commit a block, it's, it takes a lot, a long time, like minimum a couple of hours, uh, maybe even days, until you can be sure that the state is actually valid, just because you have like this delay that you have to build in, just because, yeah, like Ethereum could be congested for like eight hours, so you need to make the period long enough so that people can still get their fraud proven. So for optimistic rollup, that takes a, lot, a long time, but for ZK rollup, uh, that's basically in the hands of the operator itself to uh, how long that takes. So like generate a proof for like uh, currently like for uh, a thousand trades in a block. It only takes like less than two minutes. So we can we can do withdrawals requests. Uh, we can handle withdrawal requests. 
uh, very fast so people can also get their money out uh, very quickly like in the five or ten minutes my account balance when i actually swap something so if i submit a a buy order and then my balances need to be updated because i get the the swapped uh token where is the balance and the state moved off chain and where is it moved back on chain and how often is that uh checkpoint or that settlement done is it done every block or just can you walk through that uh exercise yeah so we we store like i said all the states of the exchange in a merkle tree so uh if you want to do a trade so like you you create an order you you buy something uh what will happen in the real layer is we we use the merkle tree we check the balance in the merkle tree uh we do the updating of the of the balances in the merkle tree between the accounts uh which which yeah, if everything happens correctly, so the operator doesn't try to cheat, uh, so he updates the account uh, balances. Then we uh, submit that uh, yeah, we bundle it in a block, uh, send the data to the prover, and then we prove that the state transitions are correct. So uh, you could say that the prover actually does the normal work that you yeah, like. The work you have to do on chain is actually done now in the prover because only the prover can generate valid data. Like you can only generate a proof for valid data uh, instead of like an, an on-chain where you would have to like check balances on-chain and then require that it's positive afterwards and stuff like that. Uh, so that stuff happens in the circuits. Uh, so then you have like the block and the proof. Uh, you commit that those together and then in the smart contract, we have like the old Merkle route uh, with all the old state, and then we submit the new Merkle route with all the updated state. And then if the proof is valid, then the old Merkle route is replaced by the new Merkle route. So all the all the trades are done and all the trades are settled. And now the new Merkle route is a valid state that can be built on for the next blocks. So the this is done every time a block is submitted on chain, and a block can contain up to four thousand. Like, uh, well, it can contain, contain thousands of transactions because it's so, just the Merkle root that you're uh, stamping on to the main Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, where are the balances updated? So, so uh, after the exchange is done. You're stamping the Merkle root, or you're checkpointing the Merkle root onto the Ethereum blockchain. So I guess that smart contract that pulls data back and replaces the Merkle root will manage the account balances as well. Yeah. So the the one of the things that's like you people have to deposit funds first to the to the exchange, right? So okay. uh, all the account balances are stored in the Merkle root, but to start trading, you have to first deposit things. Uh, just deposit tokens to the exchange, then it's stored in the Merkle root. Then you can do all the trading in the Merkle tree, which is like the cheap, cheap state transition just by the Merkle root. And then you can withdraw again from the from the balances stored in the Merkle root. So that's the only place where we where we have any communication with with the, the on-chain balance of users. So we 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 don't modify any other balances ever 
uh, for users than just deposit and withdraw. Okay. And so when you say you can reconstruct the exchange state from the on-chain data, uh, tell me how that is possible if you only have the root of the Merkle tree. How do I have, how can I get the order book? But the order book is all, all space off-chain. So the, the exchange state doesn't include the, the order book because from like, from a security po uh, point of view, like you don't need to know the order book to get your money back out of the exchange, which is like the main reason why we put the exchange state on chain to begin with. So it's just the people don't need to have access to the order books because they are only interested in their balances, uh, which which is really their money that that's stored there. Uh, but yeah, except for the order book itself, which contains unsettled orders, all the other stuff is in, uh, is actually put on chain. So if if any tr if a trade happens, then all the balance changes are on chain, and the trading history is on chain, uh, but not the order itself. Or or balances are a representation of settled orders. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that to come to your main uh, question. Like, how do we do that? It's like every time we submit a block, we also put extra data on chain that contains all the deltas from the transaction. So if there's like a trade from one ETH for 100 DAI, then we put a little bit of data on chain, like 20 bytes, that contains all the information to update the exchange state uh, on yourself. So it's like 20 bytes per trade. Uh, and then by replaying all the all the blocks, you can get to the to the final state because uh, just putting the complete state on chain, yeah, would of course be very expensive. So the way that's solved is like we only put the delta on chain, and then you just have to replay all the all the transaction yourself, and then you get the final state. How often is the checkpointing done on the main uh, on the Ethereum blockchain? Every time the operator creates a block, so if there's like a lot of a lot of users doing trades, then the operator will have to do submit a lot of blocks. Uh, but if there's like not a lot of trades happening or other transfers or stuff like that, uh, then the operator isn't isn't forced to to submit new blocks unless it's like a, an on-chain request. So if if the user uh, requests a withdrawal on-chain then the operator is just forced to submit a block within a certain time span. So it's actually processed because otherwise, yeah, users uh, aren't guaranteed to, uh, to be able to get their money back. Now, I think we have a very good understanding of what's happening on the on-chain side. So let's talk about the, uh, the operator. So you said that's a blockchain. What kind of blockchain is that? Uh, can you talk about the architecture of the, of the relayer or the operator? Well, basically, it's, it's like you have like the, the order book, and then when a trade happens, the relayer just queues that trade in a block and updates the Merkle tree. And then once he has enough trades in a block, uh, that's basically the block. So he creates, he finalizes like a block, he nicely bundles that, creates all the data for it, so the circuit so it can be sent to the, uh, to the prover and can be proven. 
but that's basically that's basically the blockchain. Uh, so there's not like anything more than it than just creating blocks so they can be proven and sent on chain. So would you say that the block time is variable here? It depends on how much data needs to be signed or, or approved. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. And what, what is approximately the block time here? I guess it varies with the time of the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it just depends on how many trades are happening. So we, we recently, like uh, bigger blocks uh, are, take a longer time to prove uh, and also take quite a little, uh, quite a bit of memory. So we recently uh, enabled blocks of a thousand trades uh, per block. Okay. So those are pretty big blocks. So we don't really, at this point, we don't have to submit a lot of blocks on chain. What's next for Loopring? Uh, we have a couple of interesting things coming up, so like the, the smart wallet, which we're currently uh, working on. Uh, I'm also working on some protocol improvements. So uh, we call it protocol 3.5. Uh, so basically it's like a bag of interesting and relatively small improvements to the, to the current protocol because uh, it, it will enable uh, quite interesting uh, use cases. Like it's, uh, the exchange will be like a lot more extendable uh, than it currently is. Uh, so one of the like like uh, one of the interesting things is like uh, we allow like things like which are called conditional transfers. So uh, one of the interesting things that that enables is like doing uh, fast withdrawals. Uh, so, uh, like I said, like doing withdrawals normally takes a bit of time because a user has to submit the requests, then the request needs to be put in a block, the block needs to be proven. It's the full uh, cycle. It's a full yeah, cycle. it needs to full cycle. The, it, yeah. it takes at least a couple of minutes and currently we try to cap it to like 20 minutes on loopring.io. Uh, with, with conditional transfer, we can just do like, uh, if the user wants to withdraw, then it can use a fast path so it can then can be withdrawn directly but there needs to be like a, somebody providing liquidity to do that withdrawal like immediately but uh, that's one of the interesting things uh, and another interesting thing that's uh, that functionality enables us like more seamless interaction with on-chain uh, functionality because currently people have to deposit funds in the exchange do the, the the quite limited operations that we support like trading or transfers and then if they want to do something interesting or more interesting in other DeFi applications then they have to withdraw their money uh wait for it do the interaction uh, and possibly like deposit back uh, so it's a kind of like you can the the the, the layer one and layer two uh, interaction is 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 quite limited uh, but uh, with on the conditional transfers that can be made like a lot easier like we could make like a smart wallet where funds are always stored in the loopring protocol so you, they can do fast tra trans uh, cheap transfers and cheap trades and then when they want to uh, interact with some kind of DeFi application uh, they can immediately use the funds stored in the exchange so they don't have to get it out manually and go through all those steps very cool. So essentially, you're enabling composability. So I could be like a Kyber, 
where I can integrate exchange functionality within my DeFi application, but it's seamless because the user doesn't have to wait for minutes before it goes through the whole loop ring yeah. uh, protocol. Okay, very cool, Great. very exciting. Talk to me about the smart wallet. What is the smart wallet? Is it different from something that Argent has or the main functionality of the smart wallet is to facilitate this fast withdrawals? What is the, are there features beyond uh, the smart, the fast withdrawals? Obviously the, the smart wallet we're currently building will, uh, it will be very similar to, to the Argent one, okay. uh, but of course focused on the Chinese market. Uh, so, uh, we'll have to, like the same social, like similar uh, social recovery options and things like that. Uh, but of course, with with tight integration uh, as soon as possible with with Loopring uh, itself. Okay, talk to me about the Loopring token. So you guys have a token uh, that's currently up and running. What is the functionality of the token in the whole Loopring stack? Yeah, so the, the token is used in a couple of ways. So um, one of the most interesting for normal users is that users can stake LRC uh, and then they get part of the trading fees. So uh, the protocol supports something like called, uh, the protocol fee. And currently, like the protocol fee sends a, a small fraction of every trade, that, every trade that happens on the exchange sends it to the staking contract and everybody gets a part of that. Uh, so that's the interesting one for normal users, but also for like uh, more professional users, uh, people can also need to stake some LRC to run an exchange uh, because we have a, a mechanism that, uh, that allows operators to commit a block before it is proven. So they can commit a block as fast as possible and then take their time to generate a proof. Uh, but uh, we, we don't want operators to commit invalid blocks, even though they will be proven incorrectly. It's still like a bad thing to have to for users because some trades or transfers could be reverted. So if like an operator submits an invalid proof uh, because it was an invalid state transition, then he will be slashed and he will have to pay some LRC uh, as a fine. The other way, uh, the last way to the LRC is used currently is um, people can also stake it to lower the protocol fees. Uh, so the default rate for the protocol fees, protocol fees is like pretty high. Of course, those protocol fees are a part of the trading fee that's otherwise paid to the operator for running the exchange. So it's like users don't know about protocol fees and stuff like that. They just pay a, a trading fee and then the protocol fee is a, is a part of that. Uh, but we allow exchanges to stake LRC to, to, uh, to, uh, to receive a larger part of, uh, of the trading fees. And uh, so that's the, the protocol fee is uh, lowered. Users can do fast withdrawals by tapping into a liquidity pool. Is this liquidity pool in any way connected with the stakers in the ecosystem? No, uh, because it's an interesting use case if it would work, but uh, the way the, it needs to work is uh, the operator needs to be in some kind of uh, coordination with the liquidity provider, because uh, if you do a fast withdrawal, for example, then yeah, if, if you want to withdraw one ETH, 
then you will receive that one ETH immediately. But the one ETH needs to be transferred off chain from the user to the liquidity provider. Uh, so the, the reason that the operator needs to manage that is, well, first thing, uh, the liquidity provider needs to be certain that the user actually has one ETH uh, sort and is uh, off-chain balanced. And secondly, the, the liquidity provider also needs to be sure that the one ETH is still there when it's, it's processed in the block. So that's why, like, uh, it can't be done completely trustless between different parties. So uh, it's not really trivial to, to use the staking, uh, the stake of users for that. Help me understand the staking model in uh, Loopring. Right now, from what I understand, it has a functionality like the BNB token or one of the exchange tokens where you get a discount on the trading fees. So that's one use case of LRC. Well, currently not really. Well, exchanges could do that, but that's not really, that's not built into the protocol. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then the second uh, use case is they get a pro rata cut of the protocol fees uh, that comes in through yeah. the exchange. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. now, is this, is this a, is it fair to say that this is not, this is like a liquidity token that you have in Uniswap rather than a staking style? Because the staking style, or does it have any inflation built in? Uh, yeah, so the, like, let's say that one ETH, like the protocol fee is 1%, of course it's much lower. Uh, so if that's like total one ETH, then, 70% is sent to the stakers. 20% is sent, currently not sent anywhere, but it could be sent in the future to the Blueprint DAO uh, if we, once it's created. And 10% is burnt. So 10%, uh, there's an inflation of 10% because uh, yeah, all, the, all the trading fees that are collected that way are LRC is bought from those trading fees and then that LRC is burnt. Talk to me about the architecture of these multiple exchanges. So from my understanding, Loopring is the protocol, and then you have a front end, which is loopring.io. And then in the future, you're gonna have multiple exchanges. Are all these exchanges sharing their liquidity pool in any way? Or are they all independent silos? Uh, both are possible. So if they share the same smart contract, then they can also share all the liquidity. But if they have their independent smart contract for the exchange, then the, the liquidity will be separate. What kind of data are you exposing to your end user? So you have multiple kinds of end users. You have the LRC token holder who are stakers, and you have the actual traders who are coming in and they want a swap. So what kind of data are you exposing uh, to the token holder and to the trader? Well, it's quite limited now, I think. So uh, for, for the stakers, like, yeah, we have a UI now, uh, so they can see what the reward will be and how much, like, I think there's another website, but uh, I'm not sure that, that there, there will be some kind of yield calculation depending on how much funds uh, are sent to the staking contract. Uh, 
So people will be able to see with some, uh, of course, it's just an estimation, but they will be able to see what the yield would be if it's like a pretty static amount of trading that's happening on the, on Loopring exchanges. Uh, for the rest, like the normal users, like, yeah, we of course have the Loopring.io website, so like uh, all the normal data that you would expect. Uh, but we also recently released an API for trading, so uh, people will be able to access uh, trading-related stuff using an API. So, you know, from a scaling perspective, you're able to match a centralized exchange. What would you say is the value prop that would cause a person, a trader who is using a centralized exchange to start using Loopring or at least start to uh, flip a portion of their trading volume? Well, hacks, uh, of course, hacks of centralized exchanges would be a good reason to switch. So if, if there's more of that, then probably people, well, not, 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 not good for anyone, but people will think more about the security aspect of, uh, of centralized exchanges and like the, the benefits that decentralized exchanges have over uh, those. What about prices? I guess prices is just a function of the liquidity depth. Yeah, yeah. So the prices, uh, we are running some markets, like we are providing some liquidity now. Uh, but of course, we, we released our API uh, a week ago or something like that. So now people are, can actually like build their own trading bots or uh, liquidity providers or whatever uh, using the API so other people can can also do on do arbitrage and and things like that, or uh, like hopefully integrating with like some trading bots, uh, off the shelf trading bots, uh, that will be able to support looping out of the box. Uh, any closing thoughts? Uh, I think we built. Uh, a great product with Loopring.io. So I would invite everyone to, to see and visit Loopring.io and see what's possible. And, uh, and I hope they, they, they like it because that's basically like as good as it's, it's basically like uh, the best experience you can currently get uh, with the decentralized exchange. So uh, I think people will be happy when they use it. That's a really good closing statement. <laughs> How do I pronounce your name? Just a half question. <laughs> it's uh, Brecht, but uh, that's pretty difficult, I think, for like uh, South American countries. Like if it's like Spanish people can't okay. really pronounce the, the <laughs> so okay. uh, Brecht or something like that. Is, is okay. Fine. So can I say, say Brecht? Brecht? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm super excited to be a guest on the Hidden Gems podcast by Covalent.